My name is Barry Brinson. I'm one of the elders here at Two Rivers. So there are a number of you I may not have met yet. Uh, my wife and I have been worshiping from home for the past year um, and only been back for a couple of weeks. And so if we haven't met, I look forward to meeting you soon. So the message this morning is going to come from Ephesians chapter 4. And the title of this section, Paul writes, uh, it's often titled, Unity in the Body of Christ. So from Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 7. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit of the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would use me, a broken vessel, to speak your truth this morning. I thank you for this word from Paul's letter to the Ephesians and to us. I thank you for his instruction on unity. And Lord, I thank you that your spirit is with us this morning. I pray that you would keep me from error and that your spirit would use this time to teach us and to draw us to unity. Lord, I lift up these things in the strong name of Christ. Amen. So for just a little background and context, this letter was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Ephesus. Paul probably wrote the letter around 62 AD while imprisoned in Rome. He was very familiar with the people and the church in Ephesus as he'd spent two years planting that church. And so he was very familiar with the issues and problems of that church. Um, He spends the first half of this letter, the first three chapters, really focusing on the spiritual blessings that, that those believers have received, that we receive when we put our faith in Christ. And he covers a lot of ground, uh, predestination, adoption, our future inheritance, God's power, strength, and might, our salvation with, by grace through faith, the mystery of the gospel being extended to the Gentiles. Uh, and he covers a lot of heavy doctrine in the first three chapters. And then he closes that section with a benediction, and then he turns his attention to the, from the individual blessings to the church. And he begins this section, chapter 4, with a section on unity in the body. You know, unity shouldn't be that hard. When you think about it, as part of God's creation, we're created in his image, We are more alike than we are different. We're certainly more alike as human beings than we are alike any of the other parts of creation. But yet, unity seems to escape us. It seems to be a very, very difficult thing for us. Um, It's certainly not our default attitude. I'd say that we tend to look for things that divide us rather than seeking those things that bring us together. And the list of things that divides us is exhaustingly long. But one of the things that has to be near the top, particularly today, in our culture today, is politics. We're completely divided. You're either a Republican or you're a Democrat. You're on the right 
or you're on the left. Even those people who would say that they are moderates, they're going to lean right or they're going to lean left on any given issue. Um, and we're not only divided in principle and in policy, but outside of a crisis or a disaster, we can't even put our differences aside long enough to focus on something for the common good. Things that we can all, we should all be able to agree on, we're going to stay divided about. On the campaign trail, our politicians will say, if I'm elected, I'll work with my colleagues across the aisle. And then what happens? They get elected and they fall lockstep in with their party. Rather than working together to get things done, they blame the other side for all the things that are wrong in the world. Our political climate has become extremely polarized, contentious, and hostile. And it's not just our leaders. We also get caught up in the polarization and the division. At every level, the prevailing attitude seems to be, if you don't think the way I think, you're just wrong. And that makes you my enemy. And I'm not going to waste my time trying to understand your views or trying to make you or help you understand my views. Nope. I just decide you're part of the problem and your views and your positions are all wrong and therefore you're no longer important. You're no longer relevant. But it's not just politics. There are so many issues that divide us. Some of the most obvious areas in which we're divided, we're divided about race, ethnicity, nationalism, social standing, economic disparity, power and position, family dynamics, even silly things like brand loyalty, sports teams, we find more areas to be divided through than we find uh, to be unified in. But throughout history, I'd say the, thing that the, the issue that has caused m the most division, the most hatred, and the most violence is religion. And we've been divided over religion since the beginning of time. In Genesis chapter 4, we find the story of Cain and Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought an offering, brought, I'm sorry, in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and of, and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel's and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, and you must rule over it. Cain spoke to his brother, Abel, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother, and killed him. Cain killed his brother Abel because God was pleased with his brother's sacrifice and not with his own. It seems hard to believe that a man would kill his own brother over such a thing. God even warned Cain, if you do well, will, not, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. God gave Cain a second chance. He had the opportunity to correct his error, but Cain was so angry, so angry with Abel, so angry with God, 
that he killed his own brother. Wars have been fought and continue to be fought over differences in religious beliefs. And not just one religious group against another, say Christians against Muslims or Muslims against Jews, the church itself has a long history of violence and fighting within its own ranks. As an example, a hundred years after the Reformation, the Thirty Years' War in Europe, a conflict that started between the Catholics and the Protestants, resulted either directly or indirectly through famine and disease and the death of over eight million people. We might not be fighting actual wars in the Christian church in this country today, but there are certainly divisions, strife, and hostility. Did you know that there are approximately 45,000 distinct and separate Christian denominations in the world today? and over 200 in the United States. Think about that. We've found 45,000 ways to separate ourselves from our fellow believers. And those divides and separations continue, even today. But what does Paul say in Ephesians 4? There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. One. Not 45,000. Not 200. But one. As Christians, we serve the same God and Father who is over all and through all. We have one hope, which is the forgiveness of our sins and everlasting life. We will spend eternity in heaven with Jesus, our one Lord. We have one faith, We trust in Jesus alone, and we share in the same baptism. We are all baptized into the same Spirit who lives in each one of us. Therefore, Paul calls us to be one body. It's interesting and really ironic that one of the first major divisions in the Christian church occurred in 431 A.D. at the Council of Ephesus. The very place that Paul is writing today, or at that time, he writes to this church about unity. The Council of Ephesus, it was the third ecumenical council. It followed the Council of Nicaea in 325 and the Council of Constantinople in 381. But the Council of Ephesus was primarily concerned with the false doctrine of Nestorianism. Sorry, Uh, The followers of Nestorius, who was the Archbishop of Constantinople, believed that Christ existed in two separate and distinct natures, a human nature and a divine nature, two persons sharing one body. So the council also addressed the false teaching of uh, Pelagianism, the belief that Adam's sin did not actually affect future generations, uh, that there was no sin nature passed down through all mankind. So 400 years after Paul writes this letter on unity, the church divides in Ephesus. We're so easily divided, and I have to admit, I'd be part of the problem. I believe we need to protect the purity of the church, and there are some issues that divide the church that are significant. But it does strike me that the church is so fractured and divided that we can't spend an hour together each week 
but we will spend eternity worshiping at the throne of Christ in heaven. John 17, notice Jesus' high priestly prayer. In verses 20 to 23, Jesus prays, I do not ask for these only, that is his disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given to me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Jesus prays to the Father and asks that his followers would be one, not just one, but perfectly one. He prays for his disciples and all those who will believe in him based on their testimony. Jesus prays that his disciples would be one as he and the Father are one, and he explains that when we are one, when we become one, the world will understand and believe that he was sent by the Father and that the Father loves us even as he loves the Son. So returning to Ephesians 4, Paul urges us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. And what is that calling? We're called to follow Christ, to put our trust and faith in him as our Redeemer and Savior. We're to make him our Lord and King. Later in this chapter, Paul will write, Christ is the head and we are the body. One head, one body. What does it mean to walk in a manner worthy of our calling? It means in all we do and say, we represent Christ. We should reflect his character. We should reflect the love of Jesus. We're his ambassadors to the world, and the world is watching us. But what does the world see in us? How do we behave? How do we react? How do our neighbors and family members see Christ in us? Or do our neighbors and family members see Christ in us? Or do they see us just as divided and contentious as the rest of the world? Even within the church, think about the positions we take and the way we defend them. We may be on the right side of an issue, but how do we engage with those who disagree? When we discuss the hot topics of the day or when we talk with others about controversial subjects, do we do it with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love? This is the manner in which we were called to walk. Paul says we are to walk in all humility. The word humility in other places or other translations uh, is translated lowliness. Paul uses the same word in Philippians 2.3. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility or in lowness, count others more significant than yourselves. We should be humbled and brought low when we consider our own sinfulness and guilt, our own weakness and depravity. Yet we tend to be arrogant and proud, sure that we are justified in our superior opinions and positions. Our only boast should be in Christ and him crucified. As Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Do we understand God's grace? 
It is God's unmerited favor and his undeserved kindness to us. How can we claim God's grace to us and yet not extend it to others? Do we really consider other people more important than ourselves? Do we act and react with humility and lowliness? Again, Philippians 2.3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility or lowness, count others more important than yourself. This is a verse worth committing to memory. It will serve you well when you begin to lose patience with someone else. We're to walk in humility. We're to walk in humility and gentleness. The word gentleness makes us think of something soothing, calming, comforting. The word is also translated meekness. Don't confuse meekness with weakness. Jesus was weak, was meek, but he was not weak. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Matthew Henry describes this meekness as being unwilling to provoke and not easily to be provoked or offended. We reflect the power of the gospel when we endure injury without anger or the desire for revenge. Even when confronted for our positions or attacked for our values, we're called to respond in all humility and gentleness with lowliness and meekness. We're also to walk with patience. One definition I found describes patience as the ability to remain calm and not annoyed when dealing with problems or difficult people. We tend to have the most trouble with patience with our own family members. Think about that. Those we love and those who love us are the ones who tend to get on our nerves and exhaust our patience the quickest. It's often the case in a marriage relationship that the very traits or characteristics that may have attracted two people together when they were dating, those traits are the very same traits that later will drive each other crazy. For instance, you might have fallen in love with your boyfriend or your girlfriend because they're so spontaneous and you found that so exciting and so invigorating, yet several years into your marriage, It frustrates you to no end because they cannot make a plan. The church is a family. We're described as a family. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. And so not surprising, we also struggle with patience with one another. Other translations will use the word long-suffering, which I think has a much fuller meaning to us. Um, I tend to think of patience as kind of an immediate response, you know, some kind of an immediate thing that sets off your trigger. But the idea of long-suffering, we'll put up with, we should be able to put up with faults, quirks, and peculiarities of others. Will we endure the same injury over and over again? Will we answer the same question over and over again? Can we remain calm and not become annoyed with difficult people? In Matthew 18, 21 and 22, Peter asked Jesus about forgiveness. He says, he asked, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And you know the response. Jesus said, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. That's long suffering. And it's not 
And is not God long-suffering with you and with me? We continue to fall into the same sins time and time again. In both sins of commission and sins of omission, we fail to keep God's commandment. But God is faithful and gracious to forgive us again and again. He is long-suffering with us, yet we don't extend that same grace to others. Are we willing to be long-suffering with our brothers and sisters in Christ? And we're to bear with one another in love. This means we're to forgive injuries done to us. We're to be sympathetic with others. We're to assist them in their distress, to come alongside them. We're to do these things in love. As I said, we're a family, brothers and sisters in Christ. Therefore, we are to love one another. Again, from the Gospel of John, chapter 13, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By, all, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. If we demonstrate love for each other, the world will know that we are walking in the manner worthy of our calling. The world will see Christ in us. Paul tells us to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. This unity of the Spirit is the unity given to us by the Holy Spirit. It is a gift from God. We can't create it or manufacture it, but Paul says that we are to be eager to maintain it. Or in other word, we are to endeavor to keep it. We should cherish that unity. We should guard that unity of the Spirit, protecting and defending it from attack. Even though it is a gift, we'll not fully realize and enjoy the benefits of it if we don't seek or desire it, and it takes effort. And as Jesus reminded us, it should be a part of our prayer life. So we should be eager to maintain or keep the unity of the Spirit. And finally, in verse 7, Paul writes, But grace was given to each, of, each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Paul is reminding us again that we have received God's grace. We are broken and sinful people saved by grace. Some of us may have received a little more grace than others. We're recipients of God's unmerited favor and kindness, and this should motivate us to extend grace to others. And some of those others made a little more grace than we have from time to time. So again, we need to pray for unity, pray for long-suffering, for patience, for unity of the Spirit. So we would do well to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the Spirit the unity of the Spirit, and the bond of peace, giving grace to others as we have received grace from the Lord. So I talked with Justin this morning, about 8.30 or so, and I told him I was going to end by reading a couple of verses from a hymn, The Church's One Foundation. And I got here this morning, and he was practicing that very song and made a last-minute substitution for us. So I'm still going to read the uh, two verses or three verses from the hymn, but we're also going to close the... Uh, the service with the hymn, The Church's One Foundation. It was written by Samuel John Stone in the 1860s. The Church's One Foundation is Jesus Christ her Lord. 
She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. Elect from every nation, yet one or all the earth, her charter of salvation, one Lord, one faith, one birth. One holy name she blesses, partakes one holy food, and to one hope she presses with every grace endued. And the final verse, yet she on earth has union with God the three in one, and mystic sweet communion with those whose rest is one. O happy ones and holy, Lord, give us grace that we, like them the meek and lowly, on high may dwell with thee. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we do come before you recognizing that we are sinful people, broken and flawed. And we, Lord, have received your grace, but we don't often extend it to others. Father, I pray that you would be with us, that you would give us the ability to walk in all humility and gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love, and that we would be eager to maintain the spirit of unity that you have given to us. Lord, I thank you and pray again that your spirit would be at work, that you would um, use this time to build up your body. Lord, I thank you for these things in the strong name of Christ. Amen.